Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, where we discuss movies based on books, as well as the original source material. We talk about the themes of both versions, the differences between the two, and then answer the age-old question, was it worth our time? Today we will be talking about 310 to Yuma, but first, a few brief announcements. As always, we want to encourage you to visit our website, pagesandpopcornpodcast.com, where we have the episode streaming, but also where we have research notes and links about each episode. We also want to remind you, as always, to like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Pages and Popcorn Podcast. We are pretty easy to find. Yes, we are. Lastly, we want to invite you to support us on Patreon. Your donation of a few dollars a month helps us be able to keep making these podcasts. Any support is greatly appreciated, even patrons at the $1 level. Those add up, and we love them. Of course, at the $5 level, you get access to our supplemental episodes. There were two in January, and there's a few really interesting ones on the horizon. Again, though, any little bit helps, and we really appreciate all your support. Another way to show your support via your words and not your wallet, we would love to have some reviews on iTunes. That would help other people find us, listen to us, fall in love with the sound of our voices. And doesn't that sound marvelous? Yes. Yes, it does. Once again, all that info can be found at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. And now let's pull our cowboy hats low, saddle up for today's discussion of 310 to Yuma. Okay, 310 to Yuma is a short story written by Elmore Leonard, and that was first published in Dime Western Magazine, which was a 1950s pulp magazine. It was published in March of 1953. It is one of the few Western stories that has been adapted for the screen twice, both in 1957 and then again in 2007. We will be discussing the short story and then the 2007 film version. First, we always talk about how we came to it. 
Uh, let's see. I remember seeing the 2007 version and liking it. Then it was out of my head. But when we were looking at films, I've been, you know, based off of books, this is one that came up. So I hadn't read the story. I only have read one other Leonard story, and that was 40 Lashes, One Last, which I really liked. Okay. I also saw the movie in 2007, and I remember at the time thinking, well, that was a Western that I didn't hate, which, <laughs> you know, cool. And then it totally fell out of my brain until you said 310 to Yuma was based on a book. And I was like, oh, okay. And so, I was completely wrong because it is not a book. It, it is, is the shortest of short stories. It is a very short story. It's like 24 <laughs> pages at most. Yeah, it was is fast. Okay. Yeah. So there we go. So then we read it and watched the 2007 movie again for this. And you are going to do our recap. I think I texted you that the recap for this was going to be two guys are at a hotel. They talk. Then the fight breaks out. And that's it. That's basically it. There's a... Well, yeah, yeah, I have an okay. actual recap. But that okay. was like... Yeah, I was texting no, you, seriously. It, was like, it really is amazingly short compared to what the films are. All right. So the plot of the book. In early morning, two men arrive at the town of Contention from Brisby. Deputy Paul Scallon and his prisoner, Jim Kidd. Instead of staying at the prison, Scallon leads his prisoner to a hotel where there is a man apparently sleeping in a corner. The character, Mr. Tempe, is introduced, who owns the hotel and runs the Wells Fargo line that Jim Kidd robbed. There's a lot of exposition given during the dialogue exchange, including that Scallion is working alone and trying to keep the prisoner movement secret. Kid is the only one that's been caught from the gang, and the townsfolk blame him for the death of one of their own during the robbery, which Kid denies. Scallion and Kid talk well in the room. We learn Scallion has a wife and three kids, is cautious, and has a good understanding of human behavior. Kid is much more of a risk taker and tries to escape once and gets kneed in the jaw, which he is not that upset about because he sort of expected it. The two start talking, taking the measure of each other, verbally sparring a bit, showing Scallon isn't the only one who can figure a person out, despite Kid being quite young, about 21 years of age. There's some talk about how little Scallon earns and that Kid can buy whatever he wants, implying that he can also buy the sheriff. They fall into silence as the day wears on, but around noon, Scallon notices a plot is afoot. Scallon has a moment of recognizing his mortality as he thinks about his family. One of Kid's cohorts, Charlie Prince, is waiting for them. In short order, six writers join Prince, and the tides have turned. The morality play is summed up in a few lines. This is some dialogue from Kid. You said before I didn't mean a thing to you personally. What you're doing is just a job. Well, you figure out it's worth getting killed for. Before Scallon can make a choice, Tempe is at the door with coffee. Just as Scallon opens the door, he's knocked back, his shotgun falling to the floor. Bob Moons, brother of the man who was killed, has murder on his mind. Scallon takes on Bob, first verbally and then physically, to protect Kid. With Moon subdued, they all wait for the train. Scallon is deeply afraid while Kid is trying to figure things out. Kid says, I don't understand you. You risk your neck to save my life, and now you risk it to send me to prison. Scallon looks at Kid and suddenly feels closer to him than any man he knew. Don't ask me, Jim, he said, and sat down again. As Scallon and Kid walk to the train station, the town is deathly quiet. Scallon forces Kid to tell Prince and the gang to come out of hiding. Prince and the gang come out with guns. Tension builds. So tense. Kid dives to the floor as guns fire. Scallon takes out Prince and keeps firing. He grabs Kid and they race to jump on the train. In the last lines of the book, Kid studied the deputy for some minutes. Finally, he said, you know, you really earned your hundred and a half. Scallon heard him, though the iron rhythms of the train and his breathing were loud in his temples. He felt as if all of his strength had been sapped. He couldn't keep smiling at Jim Kid. He was thinking pretty much the same thing. End of short story. All right, so movie plot. 
The movie starts with Dan Evans and his family relaxing for the evening and ready for sleep. William, the eldest son, is reading a Dimester novel, a nod to Elmore Leonard's start as a fiction writer. Evans, an impoverished farmer, owes money to Glenn Hollander. Two of Hollander's men torch Evans' barns as a warning he needs to pay up. Evan and his son Williams race to rescue the horses and equipment. We get the first sign Evans has an injury as he runs with the limping gait. He has, in fact, lost a lower leg in the Civil War. As the family watches the barn burn, William wants to shoot the escaping Hollander henchmen, which Evan stops. But this shows a distinct difference in their attitudes towards violence and their fractured relationship. William clearly detests his father. The next morning, the Grand Western tradition, we have a stagecoach robbery. Brian McElroy is one of the famous Pinkertons, a bounty hunter leading a stagecoach across dangerous lands. McElroy is played by Peter Fonda, and my God, is he grizzled. He's done it all. He's seen it all. Ben Wade, played by Russell Crowe, is the mastermind behind the robbery. What looks to be a straight-up shoot-em-up robbery is complicated when Wade drives Evans' loose cattle in the way. The racing stagecoach can't stop in time. The wheels rip apart. The horses escape. Wade and the gang kill off the Pinkertons, except for McElroy. Charlie Prince walks about, and he is just fabulous. He's got the prettiest eyes, and gay cowboys are in at this point. And he is so gay. Wade kills his own in a show of skill and ruthlessness. Evans, who oversees the whole thing, tries to get his sons out safely, but they are caught. He stands up to Wade, saying he needs his cattle. It's a tense situation. Wade, self-assured, tells him he doesn't need the cattle, but he needs the horses. Evans can get him back in the town Brisby. Wade and the gang ride off. Evans finds McElroy alive but severely injured. Being the good man he is, Evans does what he can to help McElroy. Wade and the gang travel to Bisbee to celebrate after leading the Wells Fargo supervisors on a false lead. Wade stays behind to enjoy the company of a lovely barmaid, and after a cutscene, he is seen drawing his lovely mistress, showing the sensitive soul he is deep down inside. Meanwhile, Evans is dragging McElroy on a makeshift stretcher, his sons trailing behind. They meet the Pinkertons, who have headed out to find out what happened with the coach. They get to Bisbee, and McElroy shows what a badass he is with his guts wide open and getting operated on. No anesthetic, no screaming. And only mild annoyance, says Doctor, is a town veterinarian. But damn, he is stole clone Banff, who's one day till retirement. He's grizzled. He can take it. Peter Fonda is just so cool in this film. Evan tries to negotiate with Hollander for a leniency, even offering his war medal. But the trains are getting built into the heart of the West, and Hollander is pushing Evans off the land. Having his sacrifices proverbially spat on, Evan storms into the saloon for a confrontation and instead finds Wade. In a show of some mutual respect, Evans is able to get $5 from Wade for his troubles the outlaws have caused. But in come the Pinkertons. Ambush. Arrest. Wade and Evan share measured, dare I say, meaningful glances. Grayson Butterfield, who is the railroad guy, wants Wade to be taken to the town of contention and then to Yuma and prison. For the transportation crew, we get McElroy, because the baddest isn't going to be stopped by a little nothing like being shot. Potter and Tucker, who is one of Hollander's men, Evan agrees to be the final man for $200, which would be about $5,200 in today's money. Wade's gang is not happy about the arrest, and Prince rides through, shoots a guy, and veterinarian does what he can to patch it up. Later, at Evans Ranch, McElroy arranges a decoy with the real prisoner transport leaving at night. At dinner, the Evans family say grace while Wade chomps on his dinner. We get the family man versus the outlaw, and already William, Evans' son, is getting taken in by Wade's charm. Wade has some fun poking at Evans, and we learn Evans was a sharpshooter in the Civil War. William wants to accompany the posse, but his father refuses, but William sneaks out anyway, being a typical teenager. The campfire scene has good dialogues and no bean jokes. During the night, Tucker annoys Wade by singing a hangman song, and Wade royally forks him. Literally. 
Elroy gets medieval on Wade until Evan stops him. Meanwhile, Prince finds the decoy stagecoach and burns the prisoner inside to find where the real Wade is. With Prince on the way, McOrie and the group decide to cut through Apache land. Evans and Wade talk about morality as they ride through the wilderness. McElroy is oh so righteous and pokes at Wade with a nice nod to the history of American exceptionalism and a lot of the racism that went in with that. McElroy insults Wade's mama and Wade takes him down and gets McElroy's shotgun. Wade tosses McElroy who goes sailing over the cliff like a lead angel. Wade's got a gun on everyone and when Evan's son William sneaks up on Wade with a pistol in the gentleman robber's head. Campfire time and Wade starts working his magic on Williams, seducing him to the dark side. Evans is not amused. There's a touching scene when Evans takes Wade out for a nice pee and they talk about fatherhood when the group is attacked. Wade actually ends up saving Evans, who is shot in the head, but it's only a flesh wound. Wade escapes in the chaos to kill the Apaches. He returns, demands his keys to the manacles, but Evan tosses him into the wilds. Wade, annoyed, kicks him in the head. Wade escapes to a Chinese labor camp, and there's some nice dialogue showing the racism of the Old West. The foreman recognizes Wade and captures him. The foreman and crew are having fun electrocuting Wade, as you do, when the party shows up. Turns out, Wade killed the foreman's little brother, and, of course, Wade is also has to have some fun poking at them. Luke Wilson's teeth are as ugly as they can get. They are so yellow. A shootout for custody of Wade ensues. It's very exciting. Doc, the veterinarian, dies during the escape. It is very sad. They get to the town of Contention a few hours before the train arrives. Evans and Wade stay in the bridal suite. It's quite romantic. Wade offers to bribe Evans, who doesn't take the bait. The marshals arrive, and shortly after, William sees Prince and the gang riding into town. Prince offers the town folk a reward if they shoot the marshals, and the marshals totally give up in a stunning display of cowardliness. However, the marshals get what's coming to them and are gunned down after surrendering their arms. Williams tries to convince Wade to call his men off, but Wade repeats that he is a bad man. Butterfield offers Evans his $200 fee and will allow him to walk away because it is just an unwinnable situation, but Evans refuses. Butterfield also quits but promises to look after William and Evans' farm if Evans is killed. There is growing respect between Wade and Evans. They wait for the train. Evans obviously scared. As Wade and Evans leave the hotel, gunfire breaks out and the two make a break for it. Evans is shot in the wooden foot. Prince starts firing on the town because they are also shooting at Wade and... You know, that's his boy. The two are in a mostly empty building when Wade turns on Evans and starts to choke him with his manacles. Evans says, I ain't never been a hero, Wade. Only battle I seen was in retreat. My foot got shot off by one of my own men. You try and telling that story to your boy. See how he looks at you then. In a moment of compassion, Wade decides to help Evan and both race for the train. William and Prince are maneuvering around the gunfire as the two try to make their escape. While waiting for the train, which is late, Evans tells Wade that the reason he moved out west was because his youngest Mark has tuberculosis and needed a drier climate for his health, not because he is stubbornly in love with farming. Wade says he's escaped from you in prison twice. It's a bonding moment. William, showing his own masterminding, sets the cattle off to distract Wade's gang as the train approaches. Wade boards the train, turns to congratulate Evans, sees what's coming and yells for Prince to stop, but Evans is shot multiple times. This is certain to be fatal. With his gun returned in cold vengeance, Wade kills off his whole gang. William pulls a gun on Wade, cocks back the trigger, but doesn't fire. Instead, he kneels by his father's body. Wade surrenders and boards the train to Yuma. Evan's last moment is William telling his father that he did it. He got Wade on the train. In the last scene, Wade whistles for his horse. The horse perks up and gallops after the train, indicating Wade will probably escape again. The end. The end.
lots and lots and lots of changes to this. So the names were changed, the ages were changed, the backstories were changed. My, my note under differences. Wouldn't it be easier to list the things that they both had? Horses, cowboys, a train, an outlaw being taken to the train, the outlaw gets on the train. A character is named Charlie Prince. The end. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that is... The dialogue that they have in the hotel is almost verbatim taken from the short story, and that's about it. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. It's massively different. Massively different. Which was really interesting, because I don't even know how they could call this retin to Yuma. It's inspired by. Definitely inspired by. But yeah, it's like there was like this idea, this short story, and then... Yeah, it's kind of like the seed that makes the tree, and then mm. the tree is awesome, and you're like, this is a great tree, and someone's like, yeah, but have you seen the seeds? And you're like, but they're so little. <laughs> like, it's cool. It's very cool. And obviously, the original movie in 1957 was very similar plot-wise to the 2007 one, which we're not going to talk too much about the 1957 one. That version, the 1957 one, gets a lot of the credit for taking a very small little story and making it into a fully fleshed out thing. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to really talk specifically about the changes in the 2007 from the story because the 2007 was basically a remake, remastering, reimagining of the 1957 movie, which was vastly different from the original source material. So we kind of dug ourselves into a little bit of a hole this time around, but that's okay. That has never stopped us before. We're going to just talk anyway. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about the film. Oh my God. There's so much to talk about. And there's just not that much to talk about with the story itself. Yeah. But there are a couple little fun trivia bits. So there's a deleted scene in the movie where Wade asks McElroy, I heard that your boss, Al Pinkerton, got an infection from biting his own tongue and that he died last month. Is it true? In actuality, Pinkerton did die from an infected bite on his tongue in July 1st, 1884, which would place the movie in 1884. So we know kind of the date of this happening. Right. Although it's definitely wintertime in the movie. and Yeah, that was actually a surprise. The crew did not expect to have a snowstorm, and yeah. so they were busy, like, yeah. digging everything out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some really interesting, like, little trivia stuff about the movie. So, like, but... Miguel Roy, he's got a bullet in his stomach, and he's worried about the pain of surgery. As a little bit of irony, Peter Fonda accidentally shot himself in the stomach when he was 10. Yes, <laughs> yep. I read that trivia thing, too. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun to share. It totally is. Peter Fonda, he definitely took a risk by letting himself get aged and weathered so much. But it, it worked out. And I have to say, the casting for this was great. So speaking yeah. of casting. Tom um, Cruise was originally going to be Wade. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he was. That was an original idea. And then the person who was going to be Evans was also different. Do you remember who that was? Let's see who was going to be Evans. Eric Bana. <laughs> I mean, wow, right? Um, I know Chris Christopherson was going to be Brian Elroy, McElroy. McElroy? McElroy. McElroy? That's what I think that they said, but yeah. Russell Crowe does a great job. I, yeah. Where's my little quote? I have a quote here. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm okay. glad that they didn't have Tom Cruise. Yeah, me too. And Tom Cruise is actually a, a pretty good actor, but uh, it would have been a Tom Cruise film rather than being a Western that's about the situation. Yeah, and I, I think that honestly I think Russell Crowe just brings a certain level of gravitas and yeah. statesmanship, gentlemanliness to the role. But I thought this was really interesting. Peter Rayner, who's a, a movie critic and reviewer, gave the film a B plus and wrote what Alfred Hitchcock once said about thrillers also applies to westerns. The stronger the bad guy, the better the film. By that measure, 310 to Yuma is excellent. And I agree. I think that the bad guy, the villain, if you want to say, although the director, whose name is... James Mangold. Yes. Although Mangold... Which is a great name. 
Yes, although the director, James Mangold, does not really consider Russell Crowe's character to be the villain, which is interesting. You kind of have to when you're either a writer or director because you need to bring that sympathy to the character. You can't think of them as villains. You have to think of them as... I think you can think of them as villains, just complex. I I think what what this film, though, is is saying is that everybody thinks that they're the good guy in their own thing. Yeah. Yeah, and and even, you know, um, Wade says that as well, that everyone's kind of, you know... But I think and you would think more in terms of rivals or different philosophical perspectives, not necessarily in terms of villains, because then it's too easy to get cartoonish with it. Right, and they avoided that by making our antagonist so good. Our antagonist was just amazing. Yeah. And and, and yeah, it would be a hard thing to see Tom Cruise being as good as Yeah, I would see him too much as smirking. And Russell Crowe, he every once in a while he pulls out that gravel voice that is just really cool. Yeah. Yeah, he should stick to Westerns and leave the singing to other people. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Okay, so yes, um, let's just talk about the cast real fast. So Russell Crowe as Wade, Christian Bale as Dan Evans. You already talked about Peter Fonda as Brian McElroy. Yeah, Ben Foster plays Charlie Prince. Oh my God, Charlie he Prince. did such a good job. So good. And that character got a huge cult following after this movie, which well deserved. And his costume was like sold at auction. And there's like these specialty props. And like, there's just like a ton of people who love Charlie Prince, including myself. Well, if he could have been a Western rock star, that's what he would have been. Oh my He's God. got that style to him. He's so charismatic. They're both Wade and Charlie Prince were so charismatic. You couldn't not look at them while they were on the screen. And yeah. I just, oh my God. And so good. And Foster really plays it well, where he's just got those loving looks. And you know, Wade kind of knows that this is going on, but just... Yeah. So, okay. Let's, let's just talk about the gay elephant in the room. <laughs> so, first of all, there's definitely, definitely a way to, to read this, to see this as... A loves thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Prince is in love with Wade. I, you can't, you can't really argue that the way he looks, his his dogged determination, all that stuff. Especially at the end where he turns around and he's so betrayed by Wade. His look in his eyes is so heartbreaking. And then Wade doesn't just kill him; he shoots him in the heart. Like it is, yeah, it is. Br- like that's the most brutal moment there because it is so. Nuance. It's so full of betrayal, and he's okay. He's making a different choice, and all of that stuff. Okay, totally yes. But because there's also this theme of fathers and sons and mm-hmm. that paternal stuff, I saw a lot of that too between Charlie and Wade. You could you could read it as like a fatherly love. I don't think that he think that there was ever anything between the two of them oh, in no. a sexual way. I think he loved him, but I think that that could have fallen under the category of of a father love and not a gay love because let's be honest those are not the same types of love but I, I think it was just like so much respect and so much yeah but the look that Foster gives Crow it is not platonic and I'm not saying that anything happened between them I don't think Wade is gay I think Wade likes to watch people and would study this as oh isn't this a bit of human nature and use it to his advantage oh for sure Wade is totally a manipulator yeah but I I, I mean I totally saw the whole gay cowboy trope thing. And then as I was thinking more about it and looking at all the relationships, I, I definitely think that there's a little bit of a father-son or a, an elder statesman to a younger. There's there's definitely mentor-mentee. Yeah, there's a mentor mentor. I, I would agree with that more than father-son, just because it's father a little... Fi- let's say father figure. How about mentor? 
I don't know. I could, well, if you want to say that, I, I feel like it could be either way. And not that father figures are, you have sexual, I mean, well, there's daddy and then there's daddy, right? But, um, <laughs> let's, no, I, sorry, my father actually listens to this. I'm sorry, dad. Um, <laughs> anyways, but yes, definitely a gay cowboy and definitely a lot of, a lot of love. In, yeah. in that scene. So McElroy has oh. a little bit of a tease on him about being and refers to him as Charlie Princess yeah. at one point. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, you know, that's how we insult men. We call them women. That's, yeah. You know, of course. Of course. There's nothing worse than being called a woman. Although, maybe what's worse is actually being a woman. You left her out. But Alice, the wife here, again, again, we, I don't know how many books we're going to have to talk about this. You're either the whore or the wife. <laughs> well, she's uh, okay, so there is some implication that Wade knew her before. Wait, the whore or the wife? The wife, Alice. No, no. Okay, so, I think he was just fucking with her. And this is an implication. It's not a fact. Okay, so I didn't get implied. that at all. No, and in fact, that diminishes his ability to manipulate people. I think if you read it that way, because I think the same thing happens when he's talking to the whore. The same thing happens when he's ta- when he's telling his stories. Talking to the whore? Can we not use some nice? Okay, fine. The 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 barmaid. The barmaid. Fine. The wench. The wench. Oh, okay. <laughs> wench is better. Fine. So when he's talking to the wench, when he's talking to Alice, when he's talking to Dan, he tells these stories. He pokes and prods. He manipulates. He uses his words, which is something I want to come back to in a minute. But that's definitely his modus operandi. And it would diminish that if it was actually a connection between them. Okay. So here's fan theory is that... And I'm not proposing this, so don't roll your eyes at me. I'm saying there is a fan theory that he knew Alice before, and it wouldn't work with the timeline, but there's this thing where he says, oh, you know, your son is so much like me. So that's him really goading. Oh, God. No, that, that's why I'm saying it's fan theory. I'm not subscribing to it because the timeline just wouldn't work. Yeah, so let's not give it any okay credits. Okay. I don't think he knew her. I think he was just pushing her buttons. Oh, yeah. And that's fine. Because he does that with everybody. He definitely does. But what I will say is that what Alice does have going for her is that she isn't just a wilting little flower. She says, I thought we made decisions together. as And, and that implies that normally they make decisions together. But now Dan has kind of like gone and he's making his own things and he's making these choices and, you know, all of this stuff and not listening to her. And of course, we'll never know like if he would have done better if he'd listened to her, who knows. But I did find that that was, that was a line that didn't have to be there, that she references that they have a history at least of being more of a team mm-hmm. and, and that this is definitely not that anymore. And of course, that's not the point of the story. I get it. But I thought that was an interesting inclusion of the line. And then, yes, are you going to say that about what happened in 1957? No, I was going to say that in 1957. Well, in the 1957 version, which I know we're not oh, going to talk okay. about, but it's not William, Dan's son who goes with them. It's his it's wife. His wife. Yeah. So she obviously had more. I didn't see the movie. I just read this. So I thought that was interesting, too. Like in 2007, we're going to keep the women in their roles. But in 1957, at least she, this wife person had this character obviously had more to do because she would have been obviously more in the movie. So from a feminist standpoint, it hurts a little bit. But I really do like the father son dynamic that well, is put in place. That's definitely a theme throughout this whole yeah. thing is fathers and sons and what it takes to be a man and all that stuff. So that's fine. I don't mind that that was the story that they're telling. It, not every story has to be about women. Men are allowed to have stories, too. And Mangold tends to be fairly feminist. Mm-hmm. He likes to have strong female characters. He likes to have older women in his movies. Right. That is a thing for him. Right. So that was not a problem. But I just did find it really funny that it was almost too so cliche with the Western thing of the wife and the wench. 
as, well, as our only two women. Which, what I was going to mention, fine. because it seems like you have an issue with Evan's choices. I and have so, an issue with Evan's choices? Well, it just sounded like you had an issue with Evan's choices, the way you framed your discussion. Well, you know, if you have listened to his Oh, wife, I don't maybe- know. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know. And I don't think they were making that point, And we don't know that. All I found was interesting is that he's now making a choice where he's not including his wife in his decision-making no, process. The, the line that got me was when you said maybe he would have made a better choice. Maybe. I don't know. And I don't think we have any contextual evidence to support that at all. I'm just totally... But I'm wondering scared. what your better choice would be. I don't know. That, I'm, okay. I'm, not, I'm not down on Evans at all. <laughs> all I found was interesting was he said... You know, she said, we used to make decisions together, and now they're not. So, again, that didn't have to be there. She didn't have to have any autonomy for the story. Like, mm-hmm. that sentence not being there would have changed nothing. But at some point, they when they were writing it, they were like, no, we're going to give Alice at least a backstory of being more involved, even if she's not involved now. Which, I don't know. Again, like, maybe... Well, there's a lot of nods in this film to the crap that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese internment camp. Yes. You know, that's pretty amazing. And Wade has that little discussion with McElroy about you know the Apaches that the Pinkertons killed. Right. Which is a little bit ironic. If you read some of Leonard's other novels, he's not that pro-American Indian. Well, he wasn't the one writing this in 2007. Well, no, but if you <laughs> read his stories... I would be interested to hear what a certain anthropologist has to say about Indian rights and representation, because they are not, by and large, presented well in some of his other short stories. You know, they're suspicious savages. And- well, he was also writing in the 1950s, and that's a little par for the course at the time. So so I thought it was an interesting change. And that's oh, what yeah. I mean about the, the story is that they do have nods to history that you wouldn't find earlier. Yes. No, for sure. So did you even hear about Chinese immigrant workers in the West when you were in high school? Was that taught in your history classes? Yes. It was not in mine. Interesting. Yeah. So we learned about, you know, why is there Chinatown in San Francisco? You know, and and so this tiny little section about American history. But I had no idea that the Chinese were the ones who actually built most of the railroads or the strikes that happened, or the terrible working conditions they were under, or the murders. It's a pretty bloody bit of history. I will say what I learned in school was very watered down. But yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely taught. So Now, I didn't learn the details until I was in college. And then it's one of those instances where I'm shocked. Why did I not learn this before? This is a (laughs) big part of American history. And instead, I learned for year after year about Paul Revere, who is a nothing in history. Well, I, I love that they included it. Yeah. I, I, you know, that was great. I thought it was, it set up a good idea of <laughs> the kind of hypocrisy of what is and is not allowed. You know, when basically Wade is getting tortured and Doc says, you can't do that. It's not natural. While they're literally in a camp where the people are, are being treated horribly yes. at, at talk about a natural and we're, that's where we're going to draw the line we can't do that he's a white guy like you can't do that he's he's he's, he's a white man like don't, don't torture white men even if they're outlaws but we can treat the chinese people or or as the movie says get some negroes in here to show them how to work well oh my god <laughs> but i mean again you know that was so what they said and did back fair then. To Ugh, Leonard, oh. when i read 40 lashes one less he was actually pretty with it when it came to race relations so in his earlier 1950s dime star novel works it was much more caricature and then later on you know he'll have characters and he does present racism in a very intelligent very funny way right but again this was the 2007 i just want to be fair to, to leonard here and say that 
Yeah, well, that, that part yeah. wasn't in his original story. They wrote yeah. that in for the 2007 movie to, you know, basically give us a sense of time and place. Yeah. And when they do stuff, it's a lot of times that it's there to say, look at these people. They're bad. They hold these antiquated notions of da-da-da-da-da-da versus now so that we can draw those no, parallels. I just want to say it's, that even though Leonard doesn't write about that in his early Westerns, he does write about it in his later ones. Right. It's just shorthand to help us realize that these are the bad guys. And these guys are bad guys in a different way than Wade is a bad guy who's bad in a different way than the Pinkertons were mercenaries were bad in their own way. I mean, you know, there's, and I love that about this, not to jump too far ahead, but this book is really gray morality wise. Oh, yeah. And I, I dig that. I do So too. yeah, this is, this and is that's, cool. Do you want to get into morality? Because that is a great discussion to have with this. Sure. Because in some ways it. it is very great morality, but it's also very black and white morality. Well, the characters themselves see it, I feel like, in black and white, but they're always looking at it from their own point of view, where they're they're in the good, not the bad, even when they're making bad choices. Well, okay. So one of the things to look at in this is the idea of moral realism. So we can talk about morals all we want and what's good and with ethics, but unless we're really tested, it doesn't matter. And one of the ideas about Westerns is that these are really morality plays because people are being tested. Your life is on the line. Your morals aren't just talk. You have to live them. Mm -hmm. And that's what Evans does. He says that this is what's right. And if it kills me, I'm still going to do what's right. Also, what they do in Star Trek in <laughs> the Corbinite maneuver, when we say, if we want to be the kind of people that we say we are, we actually have to do the hard work of doing that work. We have to actually do what we say we're going to do when push comes to shove. So yes, morality plays Star Trek. Just had to get that in there. But the idea of civil disobedience is you have to suffer for this. And if you don't suffer, if you don't go to prison, you're not doing what you were supposed to do. Right. How did we get to... Because civil- we're talking about moral realism. Okay. And when you actually have your morals count for something. So when I look at some... Yes, you have to be hard. You have to not go to that restaurant, even though you like their chicken or their french fries, because they support an organization that you, you know, have a moral problem with. You or have- if you're going to take a moral standing and say, take over a bit of territory for your moral right, then say, well, I don't want to go to prison. No, you go to prison. Because right, that's the broke- point. Yes. You didn't just break the law. You broke the law for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so you take the consequences. The the question then becomes, was Dan Evans standing up for his morals? Or was he just, I mean, what was the moral part of that? I think it was the, I made a commitment and I'm going to see it through, even if it kills me. And my question is, is that actually like the best choice? Because he's leaving his family behind. Yeah. And I mean, well, at, at the end, he bartered that. If I die, blah, 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 you're going to give $1,000 to my wife and you're going to da, 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 which is great. But that's kind of like being like, I'm go, my life is shitty and I owe a lot of money. So I'm going to take out a really big insurance policy and then I'm going to stage my own death and then my wife is going to be taken care of. Like, on the one hand, sure, I'm sure Alice is going to appreciate that $1,000. And his son is going to be like, have a great story to tell. But on the other hand, he just now is dead. Yeah. And his family doesn't have them. I know, personally, I would rather have my husband than $1,000 or whatever comparable money is. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I just- No, I definitely had that view at certain points when I was watching this. You're leaving your family behind. And your eldest son, he's of age where he can start taking care of this, but that's a heavy burden for a young person. Yeah. But, you know, Old West could. You could do that. Sure. But yeah, I had very much the same thing of, you know, what is ultimately moral? 
And it comes down to the sacrifices he did make for his family. He doesn't like farming. His family doesn't like it. They did it for his youngest son who has tuberculosis. And that's the only reason they're there. And that's the only reason he's doing all of this is, you know, all the farming in the West. And he's failing at it, but he's doing it for his son. So he is making those heavy sacrifices for his family. I think that is part of what makes his stakes at the end that he is going to do what he considers to be the morally right thing that much more of a sacrifice. Okay, here's my opinion about sacrifice is sacrifice doesn't count if you die because you're not here to suffer. I think part of sacrifice has to do with suffering. When you give something up, for example, Lent, or you make that hard choice of, of supporting with your money an organization or not going here because you don't want to support that organization with your money or whatever it is. If you make a moral choice and, and, and part of that is the sacrifice, you have to suffer with it. It has to like actually resonate and, and make an effect on you. you. Like you said, you have to go to jail for your civil disobedience. If you just get to die, yes, dying is bad. But let's be honest, you're not suffering anymore. Okay? You're dead. You don't fucking care. You're gone. You know who suffers? The people who you left behind. Yeah, I agree with you. However, looking at this as a morality play, the ultimate sacrifice is death because nobody wants to die. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to leave his family behind. He is worried about their... Yeah, so in that last couple minutes of his life, he's going to be really sad. And then he legitimately doesn't have to deal with it anymore. I... Okay. But again, <laughs> in the classic moral yeah, tale, yeah. that yeah. is the ultimate sacrifice. It is. And I so just if find you're looking at this as a morality dumb. play... <laughs> <laughs> and there's Kayla going, I still, it's still dumb. It's still dumb. I just... <laughs> ugh, God. I... <laughs> So yes, I get you. I, I get that that's the argument, and I agree with you. However, yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at fine. this from a narrative standpoint, it's a morality play. Yeah, that's the morality that's play. Where we have to. That's ah, a tragedy, and somebody has to die. Fine. Ugh. I don't like it though. <laughs> I don't like it. You and, don't and, have to like and, it. And, well, yeah, of course. I mean, I like the movie, and I like the ending. I just, I was like, come on, Dan. Like, I just. <sighs> okay, so this was a major deviation from the 1957 film where and, Dan lives and the book. Yeah. And Dan is not even close to being the same character as he was in oh, the book. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. The but only thing they have in common is they have that strict moral code and they're willing to sacrifice for it. Yeah. That, that strict moral code and that willingness to sacrifice. That's it. Yeah. Because in the book, he's a, he's a deputy. He's not a rancher. Yeah. He's, he's literally doing it for money, but also money and job. And Dan is just doing it for money and pride. Okay. And their names are different, and they have different number of kids, and yeah, they're very, very, okay, very different characters. but they're both family men who are doing this. Right, right, right. You know, they're doing a thing. They're trying to make money to, you know... Support their family. Support their families. So that's cool. <laughs> You're so dismissive of that. <laughs> they're trying to support their families like the jerks they are. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. I'm just... Okay, there's there's your motivation, and that's that's a good motivation, you know? Sure. Especially in this time period, and... And your strict moral code. I do find it interesting. And, and, and this is where we have some similarities. In both places, the outlaw tries to bribe the escort. Yes. And in the book, the escort's like, no, man, I'm a freaking deputy. Like, this is my job. I take my job seriously. I earn my money. But I have chosen a profession where I, more morals matter and blah, blah, blah. Dan's thing is like a little bit more nuanced. He's like, I can't take your money because how could I spend it? People would know. It's reputation based. He's like, I couldn't, I couldn't have it because then the story would not be the same. I would be like, 
the bad guy in the story and nobody would trust me and I would lose, you know, whatever honor that I have, I would lose that. My son wouldn't respect me, the town, I wouldn't be able to spend my money, blah, blah, blah. So that's like the, like, it feels like a major reason why Dan's like, no, I can't be bribed. Yes, the morality thing is there, but he's there to make money. That's originally why he shows up. Okay, but here it goes to the nuance, and this is why it's such a good film, is that you have Wade making moral choices as he goes through, and he's being affected by Dan. But you also have Dan making moral choices as he's going through, and some of these things that he's saying early on get stripped away. So originally he's doing it because his wife and son have lost respect for him. And, and so the money. Well, he's doing it because he's lost her respect. And so, yes, there's the money. He's doing it for his family to kind of gain the respect. He's doing it for his son, but then his son isn't there at the end. These reasons get stripped away as he keeps going. Well, his son is in the town. His son will know. His son will know. Okay, but he's it, been is, shot towards the end. If he said, okay, I was shot, I'm out of the game, he could play that. He's walking around, it's a flesh wound. No, his <laughs> son is outside. If he just took the money and went outside with his son and was like, okay, we're done, like, we're going to leave now, his son would know that he hadn't fulfilled his promise, he hadn't kept his word, he'd blah, 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 it would change. So, yes, he's doing it for to, to keep, to have his son respect him, so that's part of it. When you have Dan and Wade... At the end, when Wade is choking him, okay, yes, that a- is a after, totally after the bribery point moment. where okay, he knocked me out, and everyone would believe him. Everyone would, be- would believe him if he was knocked out and yeah, Wade but just got away. That point, he's th- they're not bartering anymore. At that point, he he basically begs for Wade to let him have the win because it's important for the story for his son. That's what he says. But I wonder if he's playing Wade. I don't think so. I don't think Dan is manipulative with his words. Okay, and this this gets me into the theme of storytelling, okay? Mm. And how we use language and how we use stories. Because Wade uses language and stories and, and conversation, like I said before, to manipulate people, to find the chinks in their armor, all of that stuff, and to control things, right? He's very Hannibal Lecter in this moment. Dan uses his words to create empathy, to create a bond. Like he goes to talk to Hollanders or Hollandaise or whatever, you know, Hollandaise. Ha, now I'm hungry. No, <laughs> he goes to talk to him. He's trying to be logical. Like, here, understand, I was this. I need this. He's, he's reaching out with empathy with his words. When he and Wade have their first ma- major, well, actually their first conversation, he's got his sons behind him and he's putting himself in the, between his sons and Wade mm-hmm. and he's saying, I need my cattle. Like I, it's, you know, he's making that, that it's an emotional plea. It's all emotional bonding with him. That's why I mean. These characters do change as the story continues. So I'm wondering if these two men, because we do have some bonding moments with them at this point. For sure. But I feel like that his story when he's getting choked is about, it's his last ditch effort to really bond. And he's playing on, he's playing. So you can, I will guarantee you that there's a little manipulation here because you know, um, Wade has told him about his father, lack of a father, his mm-hmm. mother, lack of a mother, his sad stories, blah, 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 blah. So he's, you know, using that. And also Wade has bonded a little bit with William. So, you know, you've seen my son, you know, he's here watching this. So yeah, there's a little bit of manipulation, but mostly it's, oh my God, please let me have the win. Like I need a win. I'm going to share my deepest, darkest secret with you right now that I was not shot in battle. I was shot by somebody in my camp. I don't have a good story for my son. It's all about the narrative 
for Dan. The narrative of I was a soldier, the narrative of I'm like, now I'm doing this. I'm sacrificing for my family. The narrative of I'm going to do this and that and the other thing. The narrative of this is why Mr. Hollandaise or whatever your name is, I need you to help me. Then Hollander, the narrative, it's all words for him. This goes to identity. And this is another big part of what this story is about. Who is your identity? Is it as a robber? And therefore you can be the gentleman robber and kind of go about and be the bad man and accept that as an identity. For Wade, that's fine. For Evans, he's thinking of himself, I am a father. And he does create a narrative, but that's also how you create an identity. Yeah, for so sure. this is his redemptive moment. This is his narrative to change who he is. I don't think he changes when he's begging for his life to continue being a father, a better father for his son. I don't think son. he's changing. I think that was his changed narrative that he wants to be. And so this is his moment where he can get his redemption. I wouldn't say redemption, but he can get his win if Wade gives it to what him. What is it other than a redemption? He he was a coward during the Civil War. This is him not being a coward anymore. I don't think he was a coward in the Civil War. They he, It wasn't that he ran away and he was bad. It was that the, that the story of what happened to his injury wasn't because of bravery. But it certainly, I mean, he wasn't... It wasn't like he ran away from a battle and tripped and fell and like blah blah blah. Like he Well, it was. He ran. His his troop was on retreat, right? Isn't that what they said? I ain't never been no hero away. The only battle I seen we was in retreat. It was in retreat. My foot got shot off by one of my own men. Right. His troop is in retreat is very different from I ran away from the battle. Okay. So I don't consider I don't consider a soldier following orders when they have been told to retreat to be a cowardless thing. I don't see him as a coward. Okay. At all. But I do see him as he's making, and that kind of goes into the identity. He's, okay, he's letting William give him an identity of a loser. Okay. And this really bothered me. He's made the sacrifice. He's moved his family. He's trying to ranch. And Williams is a total freaking putz about it. He's a teenager. <laughs> Fine. But he's still being putsy. And I feel like... like oh, he's, God. When Ella's a teenager, I hope she stole the angels that she is now. But she probably won't be. That's fine. And when she's putsy, I'm going to call her on it. But also, I'm gonna, like, look, this is why... Maybe... I don't know. Does William know that that's why they're there? Because if he does, then he's just being a putz. And if he doesn't, well, then somebody ought to tell him because he's 14 and he could know by now. But, like, the thing is, he treats his dad so disrespectfully. And then his dad's like, yep, I am a loser and I can't... You know, my son doesn't respect me. Oh my God, do you know what's respectful? Moving your family into a thing, ranching when you don't want to ranch. Stop monologuing. Sacrificing for your family. I feel like William really doesn't respect him. And there's no, no he doesn't. And there's no reason for him not to. Evans doesn't stand up for himself either. He doesn't have any pride in himself. What are you talking about? He doesn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have. He would not have tolerated William's behavior. He wouldn't have tolerated it. But he himself doesn't believe in himself. That that I will give you. But he does try. He, like, goes to talk to Hollins and whatever. So, yes, but there's a failing and not father-son relationship. But he feels like he's a failure as a father because he's a bad farmer. Even though he was doing this for his son. Rancher, whatever. Yes, he's a bad rancher, therefore he's a bad father. And if his job is to provide, that is a big thing for a male identity, especially at that time. It is your ability to provide for your family, and if you cannot provide, then you are not a man. His manhood is kind of... like. Yes, and that 
that's toxic masculinity right there. And that is icky. And and Alice buys into it, too. She can't look at him because he's not providing. Like, oh, my God, you guys, cut the man a break. Don't make him have to okay, go. Okay, but this is our modern morality coming on. For this. sure. This is a moral play set in a different time. And if you're going to say earlier that, you know what, you take it at the time that it's being yeah. written, then you have to do that with the moral standpoint as well. That's fine. And we can take those postmodern. Well, you know, if you look at it from our standpoint at today, it's a different thing. But at that time, I'm, I'm granting okay. everything you're saying. I'm just, I'm also saying that it bothers <laughs> me that William is so freaking disrespectful and, and shitty to his dad. Yeah. And if William could have just, like, been a little bit nicer, like, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. Well, fine. But, it, you know, if people were nicer, it wouldn't have happened to begin with. That's true. We would have no story and we wouldn't be here. So fine. Whatever. Putsy teenager for the win. Ah. What? No, not for the win. He's a little dick. But I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. But to get back to what we were talking about. Right. So Dan doesn't see himself as a good father, partly because William doesn't treat him like a good father. He's also a terrible provider. He's a bad provider. And so he's trying. He's failing. Da, 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 da. And so he uses his narrative. He wants to change the story. He wants to die a hero or at least die trying. And he needs this win from Wade, which again, it's not really. But I mean, Dan could not have done it without Wade's help. Right? Yeah, men helping he was, men? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bromance in this is... Is strong. And also, <laughs> you have to realize, like, Wade, if he didn't know he was going to be able to get out of prison, like, I, I escaped twice, you know, whatever. If this was, like, actually a thing, if he was on his way to go get actually killed, or... or he I was, think this is their last concession to each other, because there's, there's Evan saying, I'm really not that stubborn. I did this for my kid. It's not because I like it. It's it's for my son. And then that's when you get Wade going, you know, I escaped from Yuma twice. That's their, like, last bonding moment, really. Right. But what I'm saying is if Wade didn't know he could probably escape, I don't think he would have let Evans win. So it, it is like, oh, I'm going to let you win. But also because it doesn't really affect me all that much. It's like yeah. a mild hindrance to me. Which is why when he shoots his whole gang, I'm like, That's the why? turning point. The turning from what to what? I like to think of Wade as being very much the devil in the morality play. And he's a redemptive devil towards the end. You know, he, he does have that moment. But he is the one who corrupts everyone. So the marshals, when the marshals come and they're at the hotel, Wade's posse is out there. And he's like, yeah, you guys are all going to die. The marshals give up. Mm-hmm. So that's him really pushing everyone to show who they really are. And they always fail. Okay. Evans is the only one who doesn't do that. And that's what gets Wade's attention and respect at the end. Okay, so he respects, but what's his turning point? His turning point, I would say, would actually kind of be at the hotel. You see yeah. that look From in his what eyes. to what? To being the one who corrupts everyone, to being the one who's willing to support this guy. Okay, but you said that killing his group. Well, that's, that's not the turning point so much as that is him at kind of the final level. I think this was a process. Okay, but why did he kill his gang? Because he was pissed that they killed Evans. Okay, so his redemption of becoming, what, a not-as-bad person? Well, okay, so if you're going I, to... I, at- I, 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 the, the killing of his gang, mm. I didn't, honestly, I didn't quite understand. Because if we're going to say... We're not saying that Wade is going to become a good man now, right? We're all on that board. He's still the gentleman robber. He's going to escape, first of all. Like, if he didn't whistle for... Do you think he's going to be the same person after that he was before? I don't know. But I don't think there he is. I, I think that is a moment of him changing who he is. Right. And I could read it that way as like, this is a rebirth. I have to kill my posse because otherwise they're going to keep coming after it to, to rescue me. And I'm going to get dragged into that life. 
But then he whistles for his horse. So it's not like he's going to, as you so eloquently said earlier, go to jail. He's not paying the price for his for his crimes. He's planning his escape. So where is he going to go? What's he going to do? I don't know. But he definitely hasn't become a good guy. He hasn't become Evans. He was never going to become Evans. No, no. But I still don't quite understand. I feel like you can't have it both ways. I feel like you can't have him killing his posse because he's turning over a new leaf and... And I'm not saying that killing his posse is turning over a new leaf. I'm saying that he did it more out of revenge than he did it to abandon his former life. Except that then he whistles for the horse. So I don't feel like he's abandoning his former life. I didn't life. say he was abandoning it. I'm saying that he's going to be a different person from here on. Hmm. There's something that has been fundamentally changed in Wade. And he could only get there by killing his posse. But now that he's now that now that now that the posse's dead, he's going to escape. I don't think that he had to kill them. I think it was his choice because if you if you see the first one of the first murders he does with the Pinkerton agent who took one of his men and he said that guy was weak and therefore we killed him. Mm-hmm. And even when they're giving this guy, they're at the saloon and they're they're drinking to his memory. Even then, he was like he was weak. Right. And we get us killed. Not go- yeah, we're not going to mourn him. He was weak. And the others are like, okay, I'll drink to it because they don't care. They're well, not. And also, they don't want to be weak because then they- they're the next ones to die. Yeah, but they also don't care. I mean, they are not his intellectual equals. They're just what ruffians. Yeah, that's so interesting to cut. Yeah, they, I think you can have it both ways. I think you can say they were afraid of him and not his intellectual. I don't know if they were as much apathetic as a little bit afraid. And also, like, okay, don't show weakness. Weakness gets you shot. So I feel like he sh- showed weakness or c- was was almost a, he sh- in but, his, well, hold on hold on I'm having a thought here so you're monologuing no <laughs> okay I'm, not. Having I'm having a thought so Wade changes he was one person one type of person and he has gone through this change based on Evans at the end he's rooting for Evans you did it Evans he says I feel like the old Wade would see that as weakness Instead of killing himself, though, because, you know, he kills basically those who saw his weakness, right? He kills the young guy at the stagecoach thing because that guy was weak and weak is bad. And we don't handle that. We don't accept it. And at the end, if you want to say that his posse is like an extension of himself, you could say he kills off that weak part of himself. You could say he kills those who saw his transformation. Like they saw him then get off the train and look at him. So like... Will they be able to respect him? Will they fear him? Has this part of weak, this quote unquote weakness, because I don't see it as weakness, but I think that the original Wade would have to be cut out and cauterized. I disagree with that. Okay. So from the very beginning, Wade's character is shown to have a lot more sensitivity than anybody else. He's drawing pictures all the time. He's philosophically, he quotes things. He's a thoughtful person. No one else in his group is shown as thoughtful. The closest you get is Prince, who has some cunning, but he's not a thoughtful person. He's reactionary. Okay. So Wade is not his group. And that's part of what sets him aside from the leader. While they're all shooting up at the coach, he's hanging out with his horse and he's plotting, okay, how do we do this in the most intelligent manner? I'm going to run some cattle in the way. Right. Since they're there. And do it this very smart, very chill, very in the back way. He's more of a manipulator than anything else. Right. So for me, at the end, first off, he was never his posse. That's not an extension of him. He led them, but they're not part of him. Okay. For me, that ending moment was him taking revenge for somebody that he cared about who was killed. I can see him killing Prince for that, but 
because he said no, maybe, you know, right before Dan got shot, he said no and Prince didn't listen and he didn't listen to the no. But it just feels like killing the rest of them. I don't know. And if you say yes, as just pure revenge, then then what does that say about Wade? Does it does it say anything? Like, was it just because I feel like if you say it was pure revenge, then you then it, you can't really also say that it's like a clean slate or, or starting over well, or changing or a or a moment of change or anything. It was just pure revenge. So either it was calculated and cold blooded or it was passionate. Which way do you want to say it? it's much more passionate? OK, so part of this. And the reason why I like this movie so much is that you are seeing a transformation of characters. So Evans doesn't transform who he is morally, but he does come to a better understanding. Of what? Of, I would say, his discussions with Wade lead him to question himself and come to that sort of... And again, this is from a narrative standpoint as a morality play to really come to who he is as a moral person. I think this was the test for him. Okay, I'm going to take us on a little divergent, but I swear to God, it makes sense. (laughs) Okay. We'll see. In Harry Potter. (laughs) Harry Potter. Okay. Okay. So we had Star Trek and now we have Harry Potter. Yes. I'm a well-rounded nerd. Okay. There's this thing in the, in the, towards the end where Harry Potter has to decide if he's going to basically sacrifice himself to save everybody, right? Okay. And there's not really a question as a reader. You're like, Harry Potter's the good guy. Of course he's going to do what needs to be done, right? So there's very little actual tension there, Mm -hmm. okay? Because good guys, that's what they do. Dan Evans is our good guy, okay, at the beginning. And you're saying that he grew and changed and then made a choice and he was tested. But I I feel you just said this was his test. Okay, I wouldn't say he made a choice so much as he went through as this is his test. Okay. He made his choice and then continued with it, whereas everyone else backed out. Or died. Sure. So, but anyways, he has a test and he has to make a choice at the moment of the test, right? Okay. Okay. But I didn't really doubt or have any built intention that he was going to make the quote unquote right choice because he'd been built up as that person from the get go. Does that make sense? Okay. Do you see where I'm comparing? Dan Evans is a Harry Potter figure and Harry Potter is a Christ-like figure. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm, my point is that Yes, he had to make, he had the test, but as an audience member, I was never in a moment going, what's Dan going to do? Does that make, does mm-hmm. that make sense? So did, I think he's shown in contrast from other characters. Sure. But so, I don't feel like he grew or changed. And you, you said I'm he. Not saying, I'm saying more that as he's going through the test, he's becoming tempered. Tempered as, as in you do with steel. So he's becoming harder and, and... No, I'm saying he's becoming more pure of the person he wanted to be. And that's why I see him as this is a redemptive moment. He had those moments earlier where he failed, and this is his chance to be the person he really wanted to be. He I, doesn't have to be the loser anymore. Yes. By sacrificing himself, he's no longer the loser. He's the dead guy. Got it. <sighs> no, I'm sorry. I know. I'm, I'm being snarky. But yes, I, I see what you're okay, saying. But you, I just, you deserve that sound. You deserve that. <laughs> I just... <laughs> okay, I feel so like, whether you agree with the morality play, like, human, that's a whole other thing. I'm right, just saying yeah. that's the morality play as it's told and what it seems as it's intended. And then you can discuss, well, do we like what was intended or not? No, I just... the I, I guess the idea for me of redemption has to do with like regrets and then making things better yeah and and that's what i see is that he regretted what had happened with him earlier that he was held up as a hero and it felt hollow that was his that's the reason why that i will give you he was held up as a hero 
but it felt hollow. So now this is actually a, her- a heroic thing. That, yes. Now that you've said it like that. But before when you're just like, well, he was a failed rancher and now he, he gets a win from Wade. Like that, I, that, that just, that was like, that wasn't setting right with well, me. I but- think his failure when he was in the military is what caused him to just lose his confidence and that, the way he believed in himself is a reflection of how everyone treated him. If you don't like who you are, people are not going to treat you well because you won't stand up for yourself. You don't have that inner respect. Okay. (sighs) Okay. So the themes of the book I wrote, good men can't be bought and the old West is dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) That's the theme. The old West is dangerous. Well, it was. (laughs) That's why I say the old, like old West films are really morality plays because you have something that's on the line that you usually don't. It's such an interesting thing because it's like a very small portion of our history, but it's so romanticized and it's become like this part of American culture and like the whole, oh my God, and our freaking creepy ass love affair of guns and there's like all (laughs) of it. it, I mean, so much of it stems from the old West and the expansion and the manifest destiny and these are our land and all of that crap. And so, yeah, no, the West is... Well, American exceptionalism was a pretty nasty thing to begin with. Ugh. It it was really, we have God's right to go around and take the land that we want and we have the right to enslave people. Because we're white. Yeah, we're white and it was I'm God's quoting, plan. I'm quoting. Please yes. don't take that out of context, people. Th- yes, this is the, the theme behind American exceptionalism, which we take exception to. Yes, we do. So one of the other <laughs> things that I was thinking about while I was watching this is where do we get our moral authorities? McLean? McElroy? McElroy. You know, he uses the Bible. Uh, then you have the marshals and they use the law. And then you have Wade, who is a leader. And as a leader, that gives him moral authority over his posse as twisted as it is. And then we have society, because that is what really does hurt Evans in the beginning. Society judges him one way. So we're talking about toxic masculinity, and because the society judges him as a man and that he's a failure. Mm -hmm. So where do you really get your moral authority? And ultimately, it should be yourself. Yourself should be your only moral authority, sort of with caveats. Yes. I would say personally, and this is what we teach our daughter, is that morality is based on empathy and common sense. Those are basically how we make rules in our homes. So that but that's why I find the safe. moral authorities to be really interesting, because they all fail. The Bible fails. fails. Yeah. You know, law fails. Leaders fail. Although, speaking of the Bible and, and God, I really, really, really liked Alice's rhyming prayer for dinner. <laughs> it was hecka cute. It also gave me like panic, flop, sweat, PTSD moments from school when I was a child and, and we recited our prayers and it was you creepy. You had to do that in school? I went to a private religious school. Oh. So yes, yes, we did. Ouch. Anyways, la la la. Yeah, <laughs> we have the, uh, if you could also say the moral authority though, another failure is that supposedly the father is the head of the household and he mm-hmm. makes the rules. Of course, William's like, fuck that. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to, you know, he definitely does not respect his father and he doesn't obey his father. Yeah. But then he was a jerk at the beginning. At oh the end, God. He, he, you know what? I will say at the end, he did obey his father until he didn't. Right. Well, he went across the hall yeah. with railroad man. You know, but then he ran away and then he helped. He saved, he basically made it possible for them both not to get shot because he ran the the cattle and then they Mm -hmm. provided them cover. And I thought it was a great throwback to Wade running the cattle. It was very, yes, yes, that was cool. Like, oh, William learned something. And I was really glad that William didn't shoot Charlie Prince. Bookend to the very beginning when he's got his gun out and the Hollander men are racing away. He would have shot them in the back. 
Right. It would have been a cold-blooded killing and not totally unjustified, but a cold-blooded killing. Right. And at the end, he's sneaking up again behind Charlie Prince mm-hmm. in the thing. And I was like, oh, God, please don't have this 14-year-old kid kill Charlie Prince. That's First of all, I don't want anybody to kill Charlie Prince. But also, like... Don't do that. And he didn't. He yeah. used his gun, but as a tool to scare the cattle to da 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 da. And but like that, the, that the moment with Wade, where he's got his gun, Wade's just standing there. He could justifiably kill him, but he doesn't. And that is his father's way. So it shows that he came around. He's going to be following. This is a moment where his father's dead. He, you know, you could have easily said, yeah, he just watched his father die. And even though Wade didn't do it, right, right, right. You know, it was nobody would have, nobody would have. And cared. so this is him. Following Making a in different his choice. footsteps. Yeah. So it was a beautiful bookend, both with yeah. the cattle and with the shooting. If we look at this as the morality tale of William and we get over my blechiness of 14-year-old <laughs> boys being putzes. Well, yes. he doesn't putz. He learns. He does. That's what I'm yeah. saying. If I can get over that, which I'm working on, you know, he does evolve. And William, I think, evolves and changes more mm-hmm. than anybody else. Again, I'm, I'm not really sure about if Wade changed at all because he's planning on escaping and we've already talked that to death, like all the horses. So, okay. Um, so my themes for the movie, still good men can't be bought. Even bad men have a code. Even bad men have a soft spot. Even bad men have the ability to love. Charlie Prince. Well, um, I do love that scene where Wade is like, no, I'm a bad man. And Williams is talking to it about it. And the dramatic irony is so good in that scene. Because mm-hmm. he's just doing it to get William to leave and to get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't feel this way at all. And William is really, do- he is getting to him. Right. Yeah. And even tells him, I would have killed you, blah, blah, it's blah. And you're like, acting. yeah, but you wouldn't have. We're pretty yeah. sure you probably wouldn't have. And that's dramatic irony is great. Yeah, it is. Okay, so some of the other themes, what does it take to be a good man or a real man? I think we've kind of talked about that already. A good man is honorable. He keeps his word. He provides for his family. Like those are the good man, real men things, right? Of course, our only real good man dies. So, well, it's pragmatism versus very hardline morality. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it in, was practical let, let me, for. Let, let me ask you a question. Okay. In the in the morality play thing, aren't we supposed to reward the good people and punish the bad people? Isn't that how we learn our morality? Like we learn because these characters, like this character, this person made bad choices, they get spanked, and the people who like stay on the straight and narrow, they get rewarded. Isn't that like the point of morality to teach us to how to be good? Partly because then we get not spanked. I think it's a very common way to look at a morality play, but this is the morality play where you have the Christ-like figure, which is also a morality play. Christ sacrificed himself and he died. That is also a a moral of the sacrifice, even if it's death, because that is the ultimate sacrifice. I know it should be suffering. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Again, Christ dies, but he always knew he was God, so he came back. So really, he suffered for three days. He had a bad long weekend. This is going to get on a really bad... (laughs) Sorry. Okay. He has that moment. Father, why have you forsaken me? Yep. Yeah. For like these five minutes, it's really going to suck. Okay, this is like... I'm sorry. Yep, totally different so thing. Kelly, <laughs> uh, really, we're trying to get this to grow. I know, sorry. <laughs> okay, but my point... So, Let's yes. bring out all the controversy <laughs> we can. <laughs> wow, I just had to bite my tongue so hard. Okay. I agree with you. No, 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 no. I know. But okay, so again, the morality. The good is supposed to win. The bad is, but that's how we learn our morality. But this one is going to be, what, subversive? It doesn't do that. I don't think like, it's subversive. Why? I think that's also what? a morality play of the character who is willing to sacrifice themselves at the end. If you look at, say, The Tale of Two Cities, 
Okay. Yeah, the character who was kind of, he was the daughter during the whole thing. He was the putz. At the end, he sacrifices himself. Okay, so it's just a different morality play than the one where... So self-sacrifice is also part of a morality play. That is the ultimate sacrifice. it is the ultimate sacrifice. Okay, okay. Because I just, I mean, I found it was like, okay, so he's the good guy. He's the good man. He's the whatever. And he does all this. And then he he dies. Like, so he doesn't get his reward for being a good guy. Well, he does. He gets William to not be a putz. He gets legacy. And legacy is so important, especially to certain people. Well... Okay, but how is William going to grow up? He's going to grow up. He's going to be a better person. He's going to be a better father when that comes down. And it does become a legacy. It does. It is. It's good. It's a good thing. Legacy is good. His legacy is good. William... And and really, I got to just shift my perspective today about William. William was a horrible, teenage, angsty, putsy person. And now William is going to be a good, decent man. Yes. So if I I can just focus on (laughs) William... And that's why I they say, you know, you can look at what the morality play is trying to say and have that as its own discussion and then have the postmodern, well, right. do we actually agree with this? Okay. We talked about how no one's blameless. Even other good men have done bad things and everybody is gray, right? Everybody um, has their gray. I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, there's this Aristotelian maxim. Goodness is one, evil is manifold. Wait, say it again. Goodness is one, evil is manifold. manifold. Um, there's also another... Wait, what does that mean? Okay, there's another great line, um, I think it's... No, no, explain that one. Doesn't, is that not saying it only takes one thing to be good, but you gotta do a lot to do bad? What does it mean? Well, I'm I'm going to give you another example, and this is, I think it's Anna Karenina, where he starts off the story with healthy families, and, and I'm going to get this quote wrong, healthy families are all alike. When you have a bad family, they're all bad in very different ways. Okay. So you have Evans. He's like the one really good person. He's the moral standard that we have in our film. Okay. Oh, and you're saying that there's a lot of different versions. So good, there's only one type of good, but there's many types of bad? Yeah. Is that what your original quote? Prince is his own kind of bad. You have his... Prince is chaotic. Chaotic (laughs) chaotic evil? (laughs) He is. Yeah. And then we have our our gentleman, Robert, who is his own lawful evil. Lawful evil. You have the followers who are just kind of mindless followers and don't give a shit as long as they get their money. Neutral evil. Yeah. Yeah. We're making the best D&D game ever (laughs) off of this book. (laughs) Nerd. Oh, my God. Wait. Okay. Harry Potter, Star Trek. Nerd. Nerd. And now role playing. God, I'm just earning my geek cred today. Okay. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The gray morality. Yes. Uh, For sure. For sure. Well, that's not gray morality. No, I think it is. I think it is. It's the multitude of evil, but there's only that one good. Yeah, but those people who are evil don't see that as evil. Like the people who are not. And that's what makes them so interesting. Yes. And I feel like there is a little bit. Okay, maybe gray morality, because then it's like whether or not it's good or bad. But I feel like, okay, for example, like people kill each other in war, right? And like, that's, we consider that as a society justifiable killing. But we have lines, like you don't kill children, you don't Mm -hmm. kill, you know, women, and you don't, you know, whatever it is. No, you just rape them. Okay. No, Um, that happens a lot in war. Right, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Um, But in this, like, so Pinkerton, who supposedly, or um, McElroy, God, you have me saying his name wrong now. Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda. Oh my god! This would have been so much better if it had been Jane Fonda as the Pinkerton. She's grizzled. Oh my god, she's so awesome. She can do no wrong. Okay. Anyways, James Fonda. Fonda. Grizzled. Peter. Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. James Fonda. Oh my god. I need more coffee. Peter Fonda 
is supposedly, I mean, he's a bounty hunter and he's a mercenary, right? Mm -hmm. So depending on where you sit, he's bad or good, right? If you're the person paying him, fine. If you're the person that he's been hired to kill, maybe not so fine, right? So that's within the story itself. Right. How is he presented narratively? I think he's presented as more of an opportunist. I think he's presented as ruthless. Well, he's presented as a real man, for sure, mm. right? You know, he doesn't need the anesthesia or anything to bite. He doesn't need to be held down when they take the bullet out of his tummy. He's like, then the very next day, he's back on a horse. He's riding. He's like, whatever. Very weathered. He's like wizard. He, he knows all the stuff. Like He's, he's wizened. Wizened. There you go. <laughs> he's the elder statesman of of that, right? But I think he perfectly exemplifies that American exceptionalism and he has those Bible quotes that he pulls out at the end and that's what makes Wade so cunning is he's like, oh, you have Bible quotes. Oh, you're a Pinkerton. You think this gives you moral authority. Right. And now I'm going to point out where you've done bad things exactly to diminish you in front of other people because Wade uses his words to as weapons. Well, this is And then, and then, and then Wade (laughs) uses his body as a weapon to literally throw him off a cliff, which I loved. I like that you called him a lead angel in your uh, recap. That was very well done. Yeah. I I, I actually do kind of like that scene where he's just flying over the cliff. Yes. (laughs) Even bad men love their mamas, which, okay. Don't insult you know, don't insult someone's mama. Except at the end. So a lot of what Wade says, you have to wonder how true it is, which gets me back to the thing with the wench and the thing with Alice. How much of what he says, or was that just like, hey, I think I can get him right now because he's not paying attention. And then this makes a good line. Don't say bad things about my mama, basically. But at the end, because then he tells a story about his mom freaking leaving him in a train station, which is awful. So, but then maybe that's not real. Maybe that's just a, a story. Like, you can't. He's a very unreal, unreliable well, storyteller. Evans asks him after he kills uh, Tucker, one of uh-huh. Hollander's men. You know, we both roughed you up. You know, mm-hmm. I actually like roughed you up, but you killed this other guy who just kind of poked at you verbally. Uh-huh. So why did you let me go? You know, when I was sleeping, and then kill him with a fork. <laughs> he forked, he forked him. him good. Yep. <laughs> That gentleman, rogue, lawful evil, he does have his own sense of morality. His own code. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I poked at you, you kind of had a right to hit me, which mm-hmm. is kind of how the book character is. Kid. Yeah, 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 he tries. Yeah, he, and he's he, like, well, I have to try to escape, and you're going to hit me, and it's okay, because... That's part of we the, that's the dance that we're doing, Yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. But this is one of the things, this is why I say Wade is very devilish, in that the devil is a serpent, and he is a tempter, and he gets all these people to abandon their morals in some way or another. Yeah. Or he kills them. Yeah. Don't sing. He'll catch you with the fork. <laughs> okay. Um, I think he sings that song throughout the rest does. of the He book. does. Parental love makes or breaks you. I, th- I thought that was, we've already kind of talked about the parental mm-hmm. issues that they both have. Everybody has daddy issues in this book. <laughs> daddy issues. So did we hit all your points? I think so. My theme points. Do you have other themes? That was mainly what I had. My notes right here just says freaking William. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. I'm looking at my differences. The law, the marshals, the coward. Yeah. I thought the Pinkerton, um, or not the Pinkertons, the marshals at the end. It turns out to add to the morality of the film, even though it was an improvised thing to cover a plot hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where they had them all die. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just thought it was interesting too how in, in the in the original story it's the gang versus the lawman, and at the end of the movie it's the entire town versus the rancher. 
And the bad guy, technically. Yeah, and they get the entire town to go after. Just, it was, that, yeah, that was a pretty brilliant move. Yeah, no, it was not only brilliant, but talk about morality. Now, now you got a bunch of people who are like, yeah, sure, I'll shoot marshals and other such people because there's money in it for me. I thought Doc Parner, he was such a great character and kind of underutilized because he also does represent that really good morality. Mm -hmm. He's like the only other one and he's killed early on. But I couldn't help but laugh at the scene when Prince goes through, he shoots the guy in the town, races off, and there's Parner running after. Okay, I gotta heal this yeah. Yeah. This guy who this asshole just shot. It's, it's. I also thought, hit, like, the, the whole tunnel part, um, it was definitely the moment where Wade and Evan start acting more like a buddy cop, yeah. where, you know, they're all running and Doc Potter's behind them and he gets shot. And then Wade and Evans move their horses to the sides and slow down a little bit so that Doc Potter can go between them and in front of them. And then they close up Ranks, the, the back, yeah. okay? And then. I'm going to toss the thing. I'm going to shoot the thing. Then the explosion happens, right? It was like very synchronized. Well, I think the Apache scene is where we kind of see the start of that, where there's Wade having a pee and they're talking about fatherhood, which I just thought was hysterical. Right. Huh. And then, yeah, do. Wade goes after the Apaches and he comes back. Right. To get the key. And he's kind of like, okay, are we sort of on even level? I just helped you out. And there's Evans going, no. I'm going to throw the key off into the... I'm going to hit you in the head. And I'm going to... Yeah, exactly. Pretty... But that was, I think, one of the starting moments of, can we start cooperating with each other? Mm -hmm. And Evans is like, nope. Nope. (laughs) And then they kind of do. Yeah. Regarding the ending of the film, Mangold, the director, finds it rewarding that viewers are so opinionated one way or another. So I'm sure he would love this discussion. The original (laughs) ends with Evans and Wade boarding the train and riding off together... But, says Mangold, I didn't buy it, and I don't think the audiences would buy it. He didn't think it fit in with today's world, and that the clarity of happy and sad was never going to be there. He was looking for more of a biblical quality, a washing clean of the earth of both the tragedy that had been Dan Evans' life, and finding something redemptive in it, and the misguided venture that had been Ben Wade's life. So, I thought that was interesting from the yeah, director. Yeah, so it is... I think it's more poignant that Evans is killed at the end because, yeah, you you can't have them riding off in the sunset together. It doesn't work. Right. But star-crossed lovers and all that. <laughs> so I have my messages and takeaways. Do you have anything else about themes or messages before I do I mind? just have another little bit of trivia that okay. I thought was kind of cute is Elmore Leonard was buried uh, three years after he died because they needed to have more plots in the cemetery where he wanted to be buried. On his tombstone, it says, The Dickens of Detroit. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was cute. That is very cute. Okay, so takeaways. We have really good discussions about morality. Yes, that is true. Do you have any other? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I think it is a much more thoughtful film than what you see at first glance. I think the acting is amazing, and that's what contributed to making it such a good film. I wish the Western wasn't dead, because Westerns can be great films. But we get so many of the spaghetti westerns that they kind of just lose their poignancy. Okay. My messages and takeaways were, keep your word, even if it kills you, seems to be a good message here. Except you disagree with it. Except I do. No (laughs) one is all of one thing. Bad men can do decent things. Decent men can do bad things. Butchers can be artists. Vets can be doctors. Marshals can be cowards. Oh, women can really only still be wives and whores. Okay. (laughs) 14-year-old boys have always been annoying. Damn, it's good to not live in the Old West. And don't ever fall in love with an outlaw or the leader of your gang because he might find a sexy rancher and then shoot you in the heart. Okay, so final thoughts. Was it worth your time? Yes. 
Yeah. Well, first off, the short story is going to take like maybe 10 minutes at the most. Yeah, it's very quick read. And um, it's got good dialogue. I'll give this for a more Leonard is his dialogue is really good and he does exposition very well. Yeah, he doesn't do too much of it, which is nice. And it, it's very natural in the dialogue. I definitely short stories have to be economic. Yes, but that's not what I was going to say. To say sometimes a short story works really well because somebody has an epiphany or there's this moment of change or clarity, transformation, it's a thing. Something happens that is big and it's that happens in the short story. Sometimes short stories are really good because they're like a vignette. They're something mm-hmm. about they're very character driven. They're the thing. This short story definitely made me want to know more. Like I wished that this had been the first chapter of a book and I feel like Sometimes wanting more means the short story has failed. And sometimes wanting more means that the short story has done exactly what it was supposed to do. I would say this was a success as a short story. I don't know that would have worked much more as a novel. It just feels like a perfect vignette of this moment in time. Yeah, it's definitely a moment in time kind of a story. And yeah, it worked really well for being that exact thing, a moment in time. It was fast, surface, clear cut. But I would say that it it benefits from being part of a collection because I definitely wanted to live in that world longer. So I'm glad that it was in a in a book. There are it does appear in a bunch of different collections. So depending mm-hmm. on the collection you get, uh, I was reading like his westerns collection, mm-hmm. and reading some of the other stories helped enhance this one, and others detracted from it. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I did kind of think that it was maybe a little too simple, and like that the tension could have been written higher because we're it's tense, but we're so fast that we don't really get to live in that tension for very long about moving through the town like that. Could yeah. have been really ratcheted up. Like, that's not the point, I think, of this story wasn't the tension of it. But that I, I kind of wish that it had gone on a little bit longer, that there had been more of the I tension. I would have loved to see a little bit more between Kid and Scallion of just... Because their dialogue was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to, to tease that out a little bit more. But it works as it is. It does. It definitely does. And if it's longer, it's not really a short story. Um, well, it could have been a little longer and still been considered I, I, a short story. So the movie, definitely, yes, it was compelling. And then the acting was superb. Russell Crowe, Charlie Prince. Charlie Prince, not not the actor's name. but <laughs> Ben Foster. Ben Foster, yes. And Russell Crowe, so, so good. I don't like Westerns always, but I like this one. Um, part of the reason I don't like Westerns is because everybody wears a hat and it's hard to tell them apart. <laughs> Everybody's dirty and wears hats. Well, they have very different hats. They do have very different hats. And also, I was watching it on a very big... figuratively. Yes. White hat, black hat. (laughs) Oh, my God. Freaking Wade is like Indiana Jones, but like less of an asshole. Like, it's amazing. Anyways, he has to have his hat. No, I was watching this on a very, very, very large screen. So that Mm -hmm. helped. Like, I remember in some of the other Westerns that I have seen were on tiny little screens. And like, everybody was brown. Everybody was wearing the same hats. Yes, yes, yes. And all their clothes were the same and their hats were the same. And everybody had the same five o'clock shadow. And I was just like, who the hell is anybody? But I did not have that problem with this. I really liked this. The yes. characters are very distinct, and I like that. The railroad guy is super clean cut. He's got the bowler hat. He's clean shaven. And his shiny shoes and the whole thing. Yeah, he's yeah. wearing a suit in the Old West. Yes. Which right. I thought was kind of adorable. Yeah. I still feel like the flip was a little fast, but for the economy of time, can't you know, whatever. Sure. And, I, and you know what? Honestly, I'm just bugged that Charlie had to die. I think it. transformation is a, is a process. So Evans early on didn't like himself, but not liking who he was, was changing who he wanted to be. And then this was the test because he was already there. Okay. This is, I, I guess, okay, I want to go back to Pulp Fiction. And Julius has that great line at the end where I want to be the shepherd. And it's not going to happen overnight, but I'm going to start trying and I'm going to try and become that person. Who? Who said that? 
Julian. In what? Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. He has that speech oh, God. at the end. Okay, well, I'm sorry. When you said Pulp Fiction, I didn't mean you realize you were talking about Pulp Fiction the movie. I thought you were talking about <laughs> Pulp Fiction, these types of fiction stories that were pulp adventure, whatever. Okay, sorry. So yeah, Julian exactly in... Pulp Fiction comes from. Right, right, yeah. right. But, okay. It was not capitalized in my head. So you're saying, <laughs> in the movie, Pulp Fiction, the character yeah. Julian says... I want to be the shepherd. That's his role that he wants to be. He doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore. He wants to be the shepherd, but he has to try because it is not his nature. And to do that, he has to work for it to become his nature. So transformation doesn't happen instantly, but the desire to make it happen. Wade isn't going to change overnight, but he wants to change after this experience. He's not going to be Evans. He's never going to be the family guy. I just don't know if I I, agree with you. That he wants to change. I'm going to say, instead of wanting to be uh, the pirate, he wants to be a Robin Hood. So he's always going to be that little roguish character. I don't know if I agree with that. And I don't think I agree with you if you're trying to also imply that Evans wanted to be a chain. No, I will agree with that. Evans changed, but he wanted to be something different. And then he did the hard work of becoming the hero and becoming that. That I will give you and, and agree with you. And yeah, but Wade, I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And that's okay. Because it's it's a purposely ambiguous ending. True enough. So it's and, okay and that we don't know. And would be happy we were having this argument. Yes, he would. I'm going to tweet at him and maybe he'll listen. And maybe <laughs> maybe he'll send me an email and tell us how we're wrong or right. That would be great. Yeah. But the discussion itself is what's important. That's right. Yeah. In order to support us and have us be able to do more discussions like the one you just listened to and enjoyed immensely, we invite you once again to support us on our Patreon page, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and visit our website. Thank you very much for the conversation, Kalia. Thank you. We for can the conversation. disagree and still be friends. That is true. Yeah. Au revoir. Au revoir.